Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. As usual, I'm extremely excited about my next guests. I'm talking to Dr. Leslie Stone and Emily Ridbaum, her daughter. They are two amazing women doing remarkable work in the functional medicine space out in uh, Ashland, Oregon. So let me give you a little bit about them, and we will jump in. Uh, Leslie Stone is an MD, IFMCP, so IFM certified. She's a board certified in family practice, and she completed a fellowship in surgical obstetrics. Uh, she's an international lecturer on developmental programming of disease and application of individualized functional medicine care during pregnancy. Her passion is helping parents capture the miraculous during pregnancy by changing habits, their lives, and empowering life in and out of the womb. I love that. Uh, she's been delivering babies since 1982 and has delivered nearly 5,000 children. Uh, she, so Dr. Stone with um, Emily, her daughter, are co-authoring a book and look forward to the, its release this year. And we're going to pick their brains on the book and all sorts of things. Let me tell you a little bit about Emily. She's a certified nutrition consultant, board certified holistic nutritionist, and certified nutrition professional. She's been practicing the functional nutrition approach to pregnancy since 2010 and is also an international lecturer on practice implementation to improve perinatal and transgenerational health. We're going to talk about transgenerational today, too. Uh, she co-published the study, Customized Nutritional Enhancement for Pregnant Women Appears to Lower Incidence of Common Maternal and Neonatal Complications. This was published in Global Advances in Health and Medicine uh, with Dr. Stone and others. She's got an active practice alongside um, Leslie, just helping women reach their nutrition and pregnancy health goals. Again, just welcome, welcome, welcome to New Frontiers, Dr. Stone and uh, Emily. 
Thank you. Grateful and happy to be here. Yes. Yes. So I have been in awe of these women for years. They're just, I'm, I'm just big fans of their careful and extraordinary work that they're doing over in Ashland. And one of the, one of the, well, the big thing that they've evolved, sort of the, the umbrella under which this beautiful work that they're doing falls is called Grow Baby. So Leslie and Emily, I just want you to walk us through what Grow Baby is and just talk about the genesis of it. Well, so I'll start out. This is Leslie. And uh, what Grow Baby is, is our way of approaching pregnancy and the preconception time period. And what that means is we take what, um, what OB providers, women's health providers have been taught um, and add to it this functional medicine or systems biology overlay. It recognizes uh, nutrient insufficiencies and deficiencies. It, it recognizes genetic vulnerabilities. It, re it recognizes um, toxic vulnerabilities and puts that all together in a preconception, trimester by trimester, and postpartum and post uh, program platform, quite robust, that takes women, identifies them individually, targets their needs in that robust 360 functional medicine sort of way, and then follows them through their pregnancy and comes out with remarkable outcomes. Yeah, it's beautiful. I um, will circle. So we'll, we'll print a link. We'll, we'll have a link on the study that you published on the show notes, folks. And then we'll talk about some of those outcomes here uh, later on. And this, we will also put links to Grow Baby because it's, it's a whole site. You've got a lot of activity going on over there. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Particularly in the social media platform. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So talk to me about the, um, the hybrid MD nutritionist implementation model in pregnancy. And uh, I guess drill down a little bit deeper into this grow baby model that you've just outlined. Well, I think maybe I'm going to start this one off too, because it has very much to do with the genesis of this grow baby thinking. Mm -hmm. And what that means is after you've been in practice, as long as I have been, you um, see that despite all the individual, you know, step-by-step -step single um, variant uh, manipulations of, um, of uh, pregnancy and the, and the management in the perinatal time period, not work for you in terms of improving the maternal common maternal morbidities, and any of the outcomes. I realize that most of the standard of care that we provide is great. It does a fabulous job. But what about the unchanging um, mortal morbidities and mortalities that are associated with, with um, the mother, the pregnancy-induced hypertension, the gestational diabetes? And then what about those um, baby outcomes, You know, the ones where the babies are too big or too small? and too early and, and, and what do we do and or too stressed and so those those variables those outcomes despite the best standard of care yeah. were not making any difference and single nutrient interventions single um, lifestyle interventions were not budging the needle on anything so single nutrient interventions like a pre a prenatal vitamin or a little bit of folate um, and, 
Exactly. And certainly they do, they do give us, in, as we all know, you know, like the, the, the story on folic acid, supplementation of folic acid does reduce neural tissue. Yes. And we know, so we know that there, is, there are benefits to these individual um, interventions and lifestyle interventions, but it really wasn't budging the needle on the other outcomes. And we didn't, particularly yeah. the group outcomes. And we didn't realize the importance of that until we realized through this um, uh, um, recognition of the, that, that uh, a concept called developmental programming of health and disease. Okay. That David Barker, way back in the 1980s, was doing epidemiologic work um, for, uh, for the nutrition, the starvation time period during World War II when the yes. other annexed. And, re and recognized at that time that depending on the trimester of restriction of pregnancy during that, that terrible winter, yes. that, that would determine the frequency of the chronic diseases in those babies who had, who had been born during that time period as 65-year-olds. That's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And then we found that this, this data was recapitulated in Finland, in China, and um, there's some uh, African studies as well in the Gambia that support mechanistically yes. what's probably happening in terms of that seasonal or restriction of nutrients. And, uh, and, and with that understanding that those, that uh, with additional understanding and more robust research, we now know that, that, those, that those restrictions predict these birth phenotypes and these birth phenotypes that we'll review thoroughly yes. are the ones that predict who's going to be at the highest risk for our chronic diseases. And given those that the, the limitations, given those vulnerabilities that we'll also review very thoroughly, that we know that without meeting, without recognizing those vulnerabilities and meeting those needs or excesses individually in a targeted mm -hmm. That is the magic in the sauce. That's how we get movement and improvement in our our birth outcomes, and thus most and it, it limits itself not just to that F one generation, but there's mounting evidence that these are yeah this is this is a process um, often epigenetically driven yeah. that that recapitulates in the subsequent generations. That's outrageously extraordinary. Yeah, and I'm really going to... Extraordinary. And it's what drives, it's, it's our belief that this is what's driving our chronic global epidemics. Yeah, that's just outrageously extraordinary. Okay, I'm going to try to kind of summarize and just unpack a little bit and then you will correct me and flesh out anything um, and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, and this is the genesis of Grow Baby. So basically what you have done, the, this extraordinary feat that you just you know that you just basically impact to me is that in you know you've delivered thousands of babies um, Emily you've been in the space working with nutrition and pregnancy for um, you know going on a decade now so you've been in this space for a long time and I know you pay tip-top attention to the science I know that about you and at some point you began to tease out um, 
the development, well, I guess you came across the Dutch hunger winter. So that, that period in the, in the Netherlands when the Germans, you know, cut them off from food during World War II. And then um, they'd very carefully attracted, uh, uh, attract subsequent generations and health outcomes. And so the first aha that you're talking about is that they realized, depending on the trimester of the pregnancy during that starvation period, could be associated with different, um, with different health outcomes that don't present until much later in life. And, and these, um, these late in life presentations of this early exposure, this in utero exposure is what you believe to be driving the chronic disease epidemic here in the West. Is that true? And the globe. And the globe. Okay. And, and you talk about Gambia and you're talking about other places where the, they've done this careful tracking of subsequent generations. And there's what you said, uh, Leslie, it's either it's a feast and famine. So it's not just a starvation exposure in utero, but it's an overabundance of foods or certain foods in utero that results in these outcomes. And you've actually then taken the additional steps to begin to tease out what's happening in a given trimester and in that you've developed these phenotypes and that is this grow baby platform a am i correct yes yes i correct. think that that's exactly so okay it was also a recognition that in the midst of our standard american diet which you would think would have um uh, more commonly macro and micronutrient excesses right? Yes. It turned out that that was not the case, that even in our um, interrogating our population, we found that we might have macronutrient excesses in terms of um, fats, and, but we found that very often their protein requirement was not being met. Right. In addition, when we started interrogating micronutrients, and we were specifically aiming at those ones that were recognized to have a developmental programming impact yes. or were most active in terms of enzymatic activities yeah. or protein synthesis activities, that those were the ones that we were looking at to say, to see if they were going to be insufficient. And sure enough, that, that the remarkable overlap between specific micronutrients and those that drive resilience in health were really remarkably common in our population, which is not, it's not, it, it's a fairly educated, um, no food deserts. Yeah. In and, and here we were programming our, our diseases. Is what That's amazing. Just extraordinary. All right. So we're going to come back to that because I know people want to know specifics as much as possible, as much as we can in this time. Again, I want to mention folks, they have a book coming out. Yay. And you can get, and you can hop over to their platform and, and, and see what they're doing. Uh, we will just pack as much detail onto the show notes as possible. I do want to just point out, I want to say one more time. Um, and Le Leslie, that one that, that you have been um the science is kind of is coming out of this developmental origins of health and disease uh mm -hmm. paradigm or I, I guess it's a professional association and there there is an international society for this and, yeah. okay we'll put links on it we'll put links on the website for that and and these folks are they're tracking this transgenerational 
tell me what they're doing exactly and then we'll move on give me a give me a nutshell of of this. what we found in this in the in the remarkably um fast growing information that is that is accumulating in this field is that that we are we just are finding more more uh, more uh reinforcement for these nutrient excesses and nutrient deficiencies driving these four birth phenotypes that, yeah. that drive the chronic disease. What we don't see in that platform is an application. Uh, I think that is what um, stands alone for, for this, for Grow Baby. Just yeah. extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. So it's, yeah. we look at functional medicine as being the app, clinical application of systems medicine. And so yeah. Grow Baby is the clinical application of this um, DOHAD. Yes. Oh, beautiful. Okay. So what's next? I, do you want to talk about the MD nutrient nutritionist implementation or describe mm -hmm. the phenotypes? T take us. Yeah. Let's do that one first because okay. this is a boatload of information as you can imagine. And, yeah. and, and a large part of the implementation piece, which is where MLA is so integral and MLA yeah. nutritionist lifestyle um, uh, group dynamic educator. Um, means that for the person who is engaged in providing obstetric or perinatal care, they they are stuck pretty much in terms of reimbursement into this standard of care um, yeah. model, which yeah. is good, it's great, but it does not appear to be enough. And so enter an, a well-trained uh, nutritionist, and actually Emily, I would say, has been responsible for the largest piece of this implementation right? That what we do, what has been developed is a group, uh, uh, a group yeah. trimester by trimester medical model that um, allows all of this information to be presented to the um, patient, reinforced at the, at the individual visits that people come to for the provider, but then they develop a group dynamic. They learn in general what are the right uh, emphases during each trimester, and then they have the two opportunity to drill down and individuate what sort of nutrients needs they might have um, specifically. And then within this um, development are several specific food plans that are based on a low glycemic anti-inflammatory um, uh, diet, but are individuated to when we find nutrient needs or specific diagnoses. Mm -hmm. be applied to mitigate their vulnerabilities. And so that piece, that crucial piece, that crucial extension and amplification and applica application, as well as development of a group dynamic that is so empowering. Wow. The piece of the magic sauce is that these women now are trained and take over. They are empowered to do their health. They That's know amazing. where they need to go and they choose how how they're going to go about You're operating, so I want to underscore and kind of scream from the rafters for folks, you're operating in an insurance model. That's right. So this is the extraordinary thing. And so when you're doing group visits, Emily, it's by necessity because you're in the insurance model and yet it has by design become this extraordinary kind of um, supportive, kind of life-affirming process where, uh, you know, that it, that it, that's, that's better than it sounds like a one-on-one -on -one approach. 
it is. And the reason is, is I think that there's lots of data that suggests getting people in a group setting provides healing anyways. And so then you direct that group in a way that empowers them and gives them lifestyle interventions and uh, doable interventions in their day. And all of a sudden, it takes on a life of not only healing, but of the, this concept that you can promote resilience and change health versus just decrease the risk of disease. I think I realize that's a psychological game that we're playing, but it's an important one to say, because I think just in general, if you look at a, if you look at our society and you discuss what you can and can't do in pregnancy, it's overwhelmingly uh, fear-based. It's yes. overwhelming in the no world. It's overwhelming oh, gosh, yeah. and shouldn'ts. Yes. You know, so we, we fl have flipped that script on its head a little bit. Yes. And tested that throughout the course of the last almost decade. Yeah. And not only do we see uh, consistent results, they're durable and they have been sustained. We, we continue to see improving outcomes throughout the course of approaching it this way. And really what I, what I so appreciate about our physiology is there's redundancy within it in these yeah. mechanisms that make our body go. Um, and so in terms of just going down to the nitty gritty format of these uh, trimester by trimester classes, these food plans and this information is based first and foremost on gestational development. We literally took the, the you know, that chart that everybody can access that says what happens in the first trimester through organogenesis and then cellular differentiation and proliferation and then neurodevelopment as we continue to move through. And we just we formatted these classes and these food plans to meet those nutrient cofactors in food form first, because what we have also recognized is that when we discuss interventions in accessible ways, such as through food versus through a really expensive supplementation or, you know, in, in, in this unattainable, um, you know, access that it, it yeah. changes the way that people feel like they can apply this information. And so, um, just down to basic formatting, it, it's so simple and unbelievably effective. <laughs> you know, it's so, yeah. yeah, it's doable. And so, um, and it's not just, I would have to say, it's not just a nutrition focus because it is one leg of that stool um, of, of lifestyle intervention that seems to be powerful. We, we move very much into the individualization of how somebody physiologically responds to stress and how we manage that stress and how you know we manage movement for that person and relaxation that doesn't involve a screen um really you know communication with the relationships that we have with people we we definitely dive deep into each person as they sit in the class together and they share each other's successes and their vulnerabilities and then they attach to each other through this process as well mm -hmm. wow it's yeah. just a, it's really extraordinary and i um you know, I know people are thinking about how they can learn what you're doing. Um, are you, I mean, do you have, I mean, clearly you're going to need to train in this at some point so other clinicians can begin to enact what you're doing in their practice. Is that in your, is that on your agenda? Okay. It's actively being developed. Basically. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because we recognize that if we could clone ourselves, we would. But what you know, but what we also understand is that this way of thinking has to be culturally specific and location specific. And we are not the most appropriate people to give this information to every single population. So if we can train these concepts yeah. and then information can be applied on the ground individually yeah. within yeah. 
piece, then that man, that that's when we are going to see change. Yeah. That is when we're going to see that profound. Change. And you're working, you're working in not just a private insurance, you're working within the state insurance with, with state, um, mm -hmm. with Medicare, correct? Think, or yeah, Medicaid. That's exactly, yes. So I think that is what is also so profound about what we do is we see these results and we see these changes within a 50% Medicaid population. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm taking a moment. Because <laughs> <laughs> we spend a lot of time in functional medicine scratching our heads around how, how do we do this in the population, which not only are you doing it in, manifesting it in, but you're succeeding in this extraordinary way. So go ahead and finish that thought. No, I, I, think, I think it's important to say that, you know, we are seeing these results um, yeah. in a population that matches the vulnerability of our country. Right. You know, we have, we have obesity. We are applying this in, 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 with the same obesity rates as our country, with the same yes. smoking rates as our country, alcohol use. And it actually, in fact, with even higher drug use than our country. And, right. and we're seeing this shift. And so I guess, and, and I think for Leslie and I, it didn't, it, this was not an, an option to opt out of this population. We, it was a, it was a, a moral prerogative and, and ethical prerogative of ours to figure out how to meet these needs at the ba basic, most base level. And that's to everyone, not to only those who can afford it or yes. who can access it. We didn't want to increase social and economic disparity. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's extraordinary. And for, so I guess maybe folks might be thinking a little bit about like what labs might you do and so forth. And um, I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail here because we've got a lot of other things to cover, but um, you're do, you're basically doing things that people can get within the insur insurance or Medicaid, that's, right? That's, exactly right. that's right. So like, we start with the standard, you know, uh, history and physical that everybody does with those additional kind of systems-based kinds of questions. Um, and then an exam that is typical, but also looks carefully for what might be that nutrition and phys nutritional physical yep. exam. What are the findings? And, uh, and then we add to that uh, the standard of care labs, which at this point only includes iron in terms of its nutritional um, uh, exploration. But we add to it the, the most common ones that we can get paid for, which are common deficiencies that can get paid for that have the maximal benefit, we believe, which is zinc, carnitine, D, and, and then that iron in forms of the CBC. We make assumptions about epidemiologic assumptions about deficiencies in magnesium and essential fats and okay. some um, imbalances in microbiome because yeah. we have good epidemiologic data that suggested, and it's just too unwieldy in our insurance model to be able to get that. Yes. So then we target depending on what that, depending on that history, that exam, history and prehistory, right? We want to know what the, because, driving this whole equation is what their parents were like, what their birth story was like. So we get that very thoroughly um, targeted. And then with our nutrition um, physical exam, as well as nutrient evaluations, then we can pretty much target where their needs are. We've identified their vulnerabilities. We look at their toxic exposures. We identify those excess needs. And then we, we give them a broad base that covers most people in terms of that, that nutritional base. Mm -hmm. Yeah. lifestyle base, and then overarch that with targeted supplementation. 
because we yeah. can't, in, in fact, for most of our population, we can't reach those needs in that short enough of time, uh, that short time period. Mm -hmm. But we can with some additional targeted supplementation. Um, zinc, are you doing serum or red blood cell? We are doing serum. Okay. Again, they have to be, they have to be, Right. Accessible and doable. Yes, yes. And while I know you're doing a nutrition, a nutrition physical exam, which is extremely helpful. Yeah. All right. So let's keep going here. Do you, do you, do you, anything else you want to talk about uh, regarding the developmental origins of health and disease? Um, or do you want to move into birth phenotypes? I think, I think they work in tandem with each other. Okay. Right? Go, go ahead. Defining birth phenotypes would be a, a great place to start. And then also the two more maternal morbidities, which inform those birth phenotypes yeah. as well. Super. Well, and so if, so identifying the birth phenotypes, we, in, in layman's terms, it's too large, too small, too early, too stressed. Okay. okay. So large for gestational age, small for gestational age, preterm birth. And then what we have coined as a term is a stress dysregulation phenotype. And so it's for those mothers who move through pregnancy with unmanaged stress. And then what are the effects of um, that stress response in utero to that fetus? Mm. Um, and so, and then the two maternal morbidities that we are looking to um, change outcomes are um, the, the two most common, which is pregnancy-induced hypertension yeah. and gestational diabetes mellitus. Yeah, and those are the drivers for those birth phenotypes commonly. You know, so if you have complications from PIH, pregnancy-induced hypertension, or GBM, gestational diabetes, then they are more likely to be delivering preterm. They're more likely to be, in most cases, they're more likely to um, have, be in, in, in the hypertension case, more likely to be too small. In the, in the diabetes case, too big. Um, yeah, and in any of these cases, too stressed. Mm -hmm. Well, talk to me about what that looks like. The so the fourth birth phenotype that you've identified, the the stress exposure, which is huge, mm -hmm. and especially I would imagine in your population where you're seeing, you know, people, um, you know, a higher amount of Medicare and perhaps drug users or former drug users, and just you know, some some stress going on. Yeah, this was um, reveal. This reveals itself. This too stressed phenotype reveals itself. Yeah, most uh, most effectively in looking at the cognitive and neurocognitive function of that baby. It also shows up in when they do imaging, like MRI imaging of brains, and they look at mothers who have been too uh, have had have had significant stressors, particularly in the second trimester. That that that, that were particularly vulnerable in that second trimester, and then they look at that too stressed phenotype in terms of what does MRI imaging look at for the, the sizes of different parts of the brain, mm. as well as the interconnectivity between um, you know, the executive function parts of the brain and those that are a little bit more primitive, you know, the amygdala and you know, the limbic system. And they find distinct differences. They also look at, um, so that's, the, that's the, phys the anatomic piece of it. They also look at, at the physiology that they look at people's, the, the baby's offspring, the cortisol levels, yes. and not just the cortisol levels, but their cortisol response to stress in the, yeah. neon, in the, yeah, in the neonate. And then on through, they have um, prospective studies as long as into the mid to late 20s. And each of these 
um, pieces of dysregulation prove to be durable. So if you are born with a cortisol dysregulation, you keep it. And it is associated directly with increased rates of anxiety in, women, in, in female offspring and depression in male offspring, slight increased risk for schizophrenia, and certainly delayed and impaired um, different types of memory, language development. Um, and then those, those, and then going back to the anatomy piece, that those you know gray matter uh, cortex remains thinner, and they even have a retrospective study which wow. cleared it for 75 year olds. Increased rates of dementia associated with thinning a thinner cortex if they were born, in this case, too small. Now, are they are you are they able to actually associate it with strictly in utero exposures or is it early life exposures also? Well, so what they do it is always it always is the com it is the uh, our phenotype is the composite right? Yeah. As always, but no, they extract that wow. extracted data. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this content, you might want to know about our functional medicine clinic immersion programs available to all qualified practitioners who want to advance their applied clinical skills and build confidence in helping even their toughest cases. Delivered fully online, our program provides live mentorship option, access to our clinic's discussions of real patient cases, teach-ins with expert colleagues, and the opportunity to become part of an engaged and nurturing community of peers. Most importantly, you'll get the support you need to bridge the gap between functional medicine theory and practice. Spaces for a one-year mentorship option are limited, so early application is advised. Please visit drcarefitzgerald.com, choose the Professionals tab, and select Professional Education Programs to find out more about the options available and to apply. And now back to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. So um, remarkable. Anyway, and then here's the other piece of this. So that would sound hopeless, right? Yeah, right. However, small interventions, very small interventions during that particularly um, significant time period, that um, second trimester, is doing not taking away the stressors, but doing interventions with movement, with music, mm -hmm. with touch. The, the data that we have now is that that cortisol dysregulation in the neonate, you know, the, the failure of the cortisol to have the diurnal um, shifting, yeah, um, is, take, is taken away. That's amazing. It is amazing. It's <laughs> just really and, extraordinary. Yeah. One, of our, uh, one of the best studies that I think exemplifies this is something so simple. They took, a, um, uh, they took women in their second trimester and they had, this is a more directly during the second, second trimester measurement, but what they did is they had them put their hands on their tummy and listen to 15 minutes of their favorite music. And they tested before and after the blood pressure within the placenta, so the umbilical cord, you know, in the middle cerebral artery and in the umbilical cord, the, the blood pressure is there, the systolic diastolic ratios. Mm -hmm. And they found them changed within 15 minutes, they mm -hmm. dropped the blood pressure, which that is the whole, that is the, what we think is one of the underlying mechanisms of being too small and too stressed, right? Mm. So 15 minutes. Amazing. I, you know, I just want to say folks, you know, Leslie talked about this in the beginning where, you know, 
when she talks about this lasting effect into you know years down the line of some of these this early stress exposure this is epigenetic changes that's what make it so resilient and it's also interestingly why we can actually turn it around re relatively quickly at the right time point so listening to music with right. you know in in the second trimester and I want to just say for, we'll put, we, you know, maybe we'll put the links on our show notes, but I have a, a podcast on here with Moshe Saf, who's one of the premier epigeneticists um, who actually started unpacking what Leslie and, and um, Emily are now applying in clinical practice. So he started looking at this in an animal model, this whole stress response, and then he started looking at it in, he's looking at it in humans now as well. So that's a podcast you can listen to and get kind of a gr drill down on the granular details of what they're bringing into clinical practice. It's just remarkable. And um, Randy Jurdle is another epigeneticist who, um, who's dealing in an in a animal model in, a, in, in an arena that Leslie and um, Emily are now, you know, transforming in the human human world so uh, we'll put those links there yeah. yeah and I think it's important to say too that we it is imperative that we start turning our attention to how we manage that stressed father um, particularly as we're seeing rates of things like adverse childhood experiences with at least over that is estimated that over 60% of Americans have a high ACEs score of over four and of that a majority of them are women with ACEs score of over five and overwhelmingly, it's women over men who have those high ACE scores. And so it's not just, did you experience a natural disaster? Did you experience the death of a loved one? It's, you know, it's, it's also the experience that you have had growing up, up until that point in the preconception time period and now pregnant time period, is that what was your experience as a child and in your early parts of life that are now dictating your physiological stress response here? And then can we change that outcome by managing it appropriately with the right support system that you know that is consistent and continual and ever changing as you individually need that to be changed. And that's why this MD nutritionist model is so important. It's because it is this team approach and this team care that allows us to have um, a more whole view and picture of every person who's coming to us. Um, and, and because that prevalency rate is, is just skyrocketing in this country, we have yeah. to turn our attention to that. And we're seeing that manifest um, further down the road for our adolescent kids, are we not? We're, we're, we're seeing some of yeah. the potential challenging, um, th these challenges manifest in our, in, our, in our adolescent population. And so we, we can do something about it. Well, emphasize too that group dynamic is a creation of community. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. No, right. A stress. Yes, monitor. of course. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Without question, especially during that time, that's, you know, yes. the scary time yes. of being pregnant with all the questions and yeah, it's yes. totally, it's fearless. <laughs> it it's so, it's just heavenly to have humans. And then yes. of course, after, you know, mm -hmm. after delivery. All right. Well then let's talk about just with, with where you left us, Emily, you know, just, talking about adolescence and the, you know, the stress that they're under and, you know, probably having some epigenetic changes pushing that from, you know, the, the birth phenotypes. What, like, let's talk about um, what you found uh, are the F1 and transgenerational effects of the phenotypes that you've just put forth. Oh, 
I, I can't, I, I just have a, something that's floating around in my head. I just have, we, we're talking about the woman. So I'm, I'm kind of backing into this, I think, a little bit. <laughs> but that is what, one of the other profound um, effects that we're finding is that we are talking about the woman, but we need to be talking about men. Yeah, we do. And, yes. Yeah. We do. And so, be, because for these, these nutrients, these microbiomes, the aging population, uh, these stressors do play a role. And the one that, you know, for male fertility, but also for these birth phenotypes, the maternal, they drive the, the, the frequencies, the incidence of the maternal adverse outcomes and those neonatal adverse outcomes. So one of them that I want to point out is just, it was kind of uh, mind-boggling. You were talking about epigenetic um, mechanisms. And one is that if, a, that if a male happens to have one of these high-stress scores, that they have a, um, a microRNA change in their sperm mm-hmm. that yep. translates into a, um, a stressed phenotype in a neonate. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. This is not gratuitous. Let's bring the guys in here. This is when now that we're swimming firmly in the omics pond in this system, (laughs) you know, men are as significant players. Of course, women are carrying the babies and that's why you're giving a certain kind of attention to them. But yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. So then coming back to that question of what are um, the um, transgenerational effects of these phenotypes. So is that kind of where we yeah. lost at that point? Yeah. yeah. And that is, I think that you, you, you talk about preterm birth first because it's so profound. Well, I think what's interesting about, so if we just choose one phenotype, and we're going to, in this case, we're going to focus on preterm birth, and we talk about um, the, this generational impact of just that outcome. If a mother is carrying a daughter in utero, and she delivers that daughter preterm, then her daughter is more likely to deliver her granddaughter preterm, and then her granddaughter is going to deliver her great-granddaughter preterm, and the cycle continues. Now, what breaks that cycle? One full-term birth. Hmm. That's it. That, that restarts the, the, their new health story. And so I think even just in the simplest term, preterm birth begets so it's so to speak, preterm birth. And if you're talking about preterm birth as a, as a increased risk of mortality and morbidity, there is not a greater phenotype than preterm birth. What, from what? Mortality, from, just gen- anything or what yeah. specifically? So perinatal, perinatal mortality specifically, particularly in the infant, higher risk of complications, developmental issues, that whole, the whole conversation of the, the NICU complications that come to at that, 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 that perinatal time period. Um, and then extending further into their life to increased risk of asthma, wheezing, eczema, allergies, uh, autism spectrum disorder, um, you know, and, and, the, and so on and so forth. Um, because it's not just preterm birth, those babies often are also born small for gestational age. And so then they have a double impact of these phenotypes. And if we're talking about the highest quartile risk of transgenerational health and these short and long-term outcomes, it is small for gestational age that rises to the top of these chronic disease risks. So then you have a double whammy and all of that sounds so dire, but I think what has been really amazing about what we have done and what we have tracked over the course of these last um, 10 years is that these interventions dramatically decrease those rates 
to the point where some of them don't even present Kara. <laughs> I mean, and so, you know, and we, we always kind of look at our, look at each other and go, what, what is exactly that we're doing? And, you know, and we, what we are doing is we are the simplest way we are meeting each individual epigenetically where they are with their vulnerability, vulnerabilities with their N1 story. Yes. And we do that. And then we just repeat that process. Right. Right. But your, but your interventions are straightforward. I mean, you're dancing yeah. in a pond of, you know, this is, this is incredibly complex when we go move into the, 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 the underlying mechanisms, but the administ administering your interventions while very precise, yes. are relatively straightforward. So what would be something you might do when they're at risk for preterm delivery? Well, so one of our favorite, so this is actually our most recent favorite uh, developmental programming of health and disease science. And it came out of the Kansas study. It's called a kudos study. And all that was done was 700 milligrams of DHA was given in the second and third trimester to the mother uh, baby dyad. And wow. it was given over the course of two trimesters. And it markedly decreased the rates of preterm birth to the tune of if they were to extrapolate that rate decrease over how many preterm births occur in this country today, it would decrease the GDP by $6 billion of healthcare associated costs with preterm birth. Yes. Just by applying appropriate omega-3 fatty acid supplementation in the second and third trimester. So I, I think it's, I giggle a little bit when we talk about how single interventions may not be as powerful as a whole, but that does not take away from the power of these single interventions too, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Um, then when you put it all together, then that, that's where we get blown out of the water. And so just for yeah. preterm, then so that's one, that's one way that we can decrease preterm birth. We can improve vascular function. We can make sure that we, we are addressing um, and decreasing risks of, of, of pregnancy-induced hypertension with appropriate arginine and citrulline, appropriate yeah. protein, nitric oxide, you know, and what is that, all, all those fancy terms, what we do for women is then we translate it into things they know, like kale and tomatoes and beets and watermelon yeah. and walnuts, and right. you, know, you can't have access to those, let's find the one food you do have access to, and let's start with that one, yeah. you know, and so we break it down to the point where they literally are walking through the door and they have one single food plan with their main focus nutrients in these foods, and they can take that to the grocery store and say, this is my next best decision. You know, so um, the other yeah. important piece of this is that, you know, how long does it take? I always like yeah. to include, Emily particularly likes to include, how long does it take to make a change? You've know, mm -hmm. given a nod to that rapid epigenetic modification capabilities. And I think that when they, uh, there's a really interesting study where they looked at good fats versus bad fats, and they looked at the different um, enzyme activities, transcription activities um, associated with the different, um, uh, uh, different of these enzymes and transcription activities that had to do with fat metabolism. They found that depending on which diet you gave them, bad fat, good fat, that it took about six hours to modify that, that gene expression. 
<laughs> that's really extraordinary. Yes, it's a continuum. I think that's what you're getting at. Like these, so the resilience of those epigenetic changes, you know, like the Dutch hunger winter study that we originally started to talk about, we see transgenerationally. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about it. It can have negative impact, but then Emily pointed out that we, that you can absolutely shut down premature delivery like with, like with very simple interventions and shut it down generationally rel in a relatively straightforward way and then now leslie you're saying you can turn things around in as little as six hours time <laughs> it's, really pretty, it's just pretty extraordinary isn't it it's <laughs> our bodies are meant to be resilient and we just have to figure yeah. out Food. Yeah. That's all. Yes. Yes. It's getting in there with the movement and, you know, with the intervention at a very precise moment in time okay. is, and that's what you're doing. And so let's talk about that in terms of the four trimesters of pregnancy and how they might differ in their, in their emphasis. I've got a handful of more questions, you know, additional questions for you. And we're sort of heading on the home stretch of our time. So with that in mind, just, just talk to me about those four trimester um, pregnancy differences. Okay. Well, we'll start with, um, actually, maybe even preconception. I think the best example is one that maybe many people are aware of. There's this impressive study out there that says if um, a mother is lacking in B vitamin nutriture, you know, single carbon metabolism substrates, in the three, uh, in the three months before she conceives and the one month after she has conceived, and she has two particular um, gene variants, the um, MTHFR and the COMT, and mm -hmm. another factor, another variable, her baby happens to have another one of those single chromatosome gene variants called CBS. Then that baby, simply for lack of B vitamin nutriture, has a 720% increased risk of autism compared to the same um, genetic profiling with adequate B vitamin nutriture in the preconception and post and the one month postconception time period. So yeah. there is there is this setup, this genetic setup, this, this epigenetic setup that would be better is profound in that preconception time period and into the first time into the first um, month of the first trimester. Then the next thing that happens in that in that uh, first trimester is there's this profound methylation, you know, single carbon metabolism stuff that's happening. Yes. It's happening DNA methylation. It's rapid, it's fast. And there's a big requirement for those factors. Yeah. Um, and if otherwise, because it's during that time period that we're, set, we're deciding which cells are gonna be what, yeah. you know, such that by the time we hit about 13 weeks or so, you know, they have, they, have, they have pretty much decided what's going to be what. And then in the next, tri so, so then in the next trimester, we have building and in, in, in increasing complexities and interconnectivities within those organ systems. And so that has a different set of nutriture that's associated with it. And also that DNA, that DNA methylation drops dramatically during that time. Yeah, right. Yeah. So after they get out of, you know, their stem cells have been given their marching orders, so they know their fate, that so they've moved out of that, then you start building. So that would be higher requirement for protein, I'm assuming. And yes. Okay. Right. 
And then as we head on into that, that, um, that last uh, trimester, the, you, know, the, uh, you know, the two target organs that I think of most profoundly are the heart, but also the brain. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to make all those connections at that time is trying to add a lot of fat. And so we're talking mm -hmm. about um, maximizing that healthy fat piece of it, the DHA, yes. the, the, the EPA, and, you know, right. And then in the postpartum time period, we're trying to decide that fourth trimester, as we call it. We are trying to make that transition successful, you know, through breastfeeding, through adequate nutriture, because those babies continue to have these, these continuing needs, right? They still need adequate um, single carbon metabolism support. They still need, they're still at, they're potentially at risk for these nutrient insufficiencies. We need to meet those through meeting the mother's needs, or if the mother is unable to do that breastfeeding piece of it, then we have to be able to support it um, in other ways. And of course, we all know about these varying, there, there's varying stressors. So let's go back to the lifestyle piece of this and, and the support piece of this. It turns out during that first trimester, that organogenesis, yes, it's susceptible to stress, but it's particularly the, um, uh, the I mean, differentiation piece of it is during that organogenesis, the growing of the, 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 of, the, of the cells in the second trimester is particularly susceptible to perceived stress. Mm -hmm. And it's at that time that we have the greatest ability to um, manage, to have an intervention that is successful. It's interesting to me that in the third trimester, stress perception drops, and that probably has to do with all sorts of cortisol, feed-forward cortisol effects, mm. you know? But whatever the case is, the setup for a mother who was stressed in that second trimester is more likely to deliver preterm. The one who's, who was um, stressed in the third trimester is, doesn't have a huge increase in that preterm birth rate. You know, it's sort of interesting that it's, it is, yeah. there, time periods that have to be addressed sequentially yeah and intentionally wow i really look forward to your book <laughs> <laughs> i look forward to just you know understanding this journey more uh you know in, in more granular detail and yeah mm -hmm. I, I look forward to you know just learning more from you on this because it is it's just it's absolutely extraordinary and you know the I, again, folks, if you want to listen to that Randy Jurdal podcast, he does incidentally have the most, he and Waterland have the most cited paper in the history of science. And that paper was on what Leslie and Emily are doing right now. And that, and he was in an animal model, but he put the influence of nutrition um, in, uh, in phenotype expression. So the, the, the early, um, during 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 well certain during early embryogenesis i think is when they mm -hmm. yielded the most influence in these animal models um and the phenotypic expression in the adult in the adult offspring i mean he kind of he put that whole journey on the map and it's called the agouti mice studies and i would encourage you to look it up or, or take a listen to the podcast where we talk about it he really is the translator for that information is that we went oh see we do have an effect a nutritional effect all all things that we seem to know yes that profound difference between addition of of these methylating nutrients yes um, to uh to a, a controlled diet on a mouse we have the, made the difference between an obese, diabetic, early yes. woman, um, yes. and one that, that lived a happy, slim, dark-haired <laughs> life. Yeah. You know? 
Well, he's, so he's kind of a, a major hero to us. And there is a great book that I think that if people were really, truly interested in this, and he's an editor along with a, a man named Tyson, Randy Jurdle and Frederick Tyson, Environmental Epigenomics in Health and Disease. Yeah, because they, yeah, they went on and showed this different phenotypic expression, obese, you know, cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic disease, et cetera, et cetera, outcome, or healthy with, with not just introducing methyl donors like folate and so forth, but, you know, negative outcomes with BPA exposure or beneficial outcomes with genistine. Yeah. That appeared to intervene with that DNA methylation um, marks, the ones that, and that also just so how do we get a transgenerational effect? It was by shutting down certain parts of the transcription of the yes. of, and, you know, That's right. and over decades, over decades, over generations, could reverse, but, but you know, you could also reverse it with having diet. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you just, it's pretty, it, it blew yeah. the lid off of. That's right. You just blew the minds of many scientists when, when they demonstrated that. Well, talk to me just, you know, in just the, the home stretch here, um, some, some things that you, you know, where you're, well, we know you're headed with the book, but just some big picture stuff around this work that really excites you. Um, some, uh, some, I don't know, just, just, Give us some words of wisdom from this extraordinary journey you've been on or something that, that inspires or has been influencing you lately. Or I'm just going to open it up. Well, I think, and I'm going I'm to start out with kind of some, di some dire news first, but then okay. my excitement that is associated with it and also our excitement is, you know, I think we really, when, when we look at global health rates and we look at global rates of these phenotypes, I have to um, sadly report that um, besides Malawi in our world, Mississippi Medicaid has the highest rate of preterm birth in the world. Wow. And then Mississippi as a state has the, is within top third world countries of preterm birth and the highest rate in the United States. And so I think more than anything, what excites us and some of the work that we are starting to do, um, and, and we can't divulge wholly, but it, it definitely lives in this world, is we are looking to apply this model in 100% Medicaid um, vulnerable populations. And uh, so if there's something that excites us, what excites us is that we, what we have done may be able to translate into health and resilience within, um, you know, populations that have some of the highest rates of these social determinants of health. Yeah. Um, and so uh, for us, that's unbelievably exciting <laughs> and yeah. something that, that has been, um, I think, a dream of ours for a very, very long time. Yeah. Uh, and you know, because it's, it's a headline we don't really want to be known for, you know, particularly when we're talking about uh, yeah. a, a what we are otherwise this plentiful, rich yes. uh, nation. And yet we still are not doing a good job, you wow. know? And so um, that's something that we're, we're very, very excited about. And then my own, then my, I think uh, we, we didn't really get to get into the autism. Um, oh yeah, of course. A, yeah. A little, a little bit, but I think, yes. I think it's important to say that there was, there was a study that was published in March um, and it had to do with pesticide exposure and increased risk of autism in, yes. in baby 
And that for those mothers who lived as close as two kilometers to any field that's being sprayed with herbicide, pesticide, fungicide, that it increases autism risk in that child by almost 30%. And if they continue to live in that space, that child's increased rate increases to 50%. And that all sounds horrible, yes. except what do we know? We know that this one carbon metabolism sits at the center of our ability to detox. So what does that mean? That's an opportunity for us to target those detoxification pathways, target that one single metabolism yeah. and improve its efficacy during mm -hmm. this time period. Mm -hmm. Rather than say, sorry, you're going to have to move, which is not going to be an option. We educate around yes. what you can do to provide that resilience. We educate around if you can't buy organic food, how do you wash that that food to decrease, you know, pesticide, pesticide residue um, exposure. What are the dirty dozen clean 15? What, you know, what sulfur rich foods can we include every day? What, you know, how, how can we make sure that you're pooping every day? You know, can we make, you know, just simple things going back to how can we take care of this basic physiology, even knowing that the risks of exposures are increasing daily? Yeah. Amen to that. And again, Jertle and Waterland actually demonstrated just what you're yeah. saying, Emily. Yeah. Well, to, to, I mean, give me, but even more importantly, really more importantly, is that you have shown this, you know, in the 5,000 babies that you've delivered, Leslie, and the work that you've done there, you have shown success with these interventions. So we've had an opportunity to now, since our initial work was published in 2014, but it represented 2011, 2012, we now have been able to follow unpublished um, our longitudinal kid outcomes, right? And we just, we practically never have a, um, a kid with autism. We just, we one at this point. One in five, and, about 500. Yeah. And, and you know, we have a few others who have attention deficit, but it's just a few. We, don't, we have a less than 1% rate of um, atopy asthma. We have... Um, up until up until January, we had zero preterm births, mm -hmm. and, uh, and now as of January, I have one preterm birth. <laughs> but, but that's it. Wow! So, so you could count on you could count on two hands. Yeah, <laughs> complications seen elsewhere. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. you, you, the, 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 as the as the dominant paradigm are. Yeah, yeah, distant. Exactly in your yes. practice. Oh, that's extraordinary. Yeah. All right. Well, anything that I can pop on our show notes just to talk more about this, everybody will want to, will want to read about it. I want to say that, um, you know, if, if, if you need donations, I mean, if you need support, certainly my, I just want, I, I want, I'm feeling like I want to be behind you and really help facilitate mm -hmm. the work you're doing. And I'm, I'm sure that if I'm feeling that way, that there are people listening to this that, that also feel that way. So, you know, as it unfolds, you know, you, if you need us, you know, we're a community who, who we've got your back and we want to participate. Wow. So that's an amazing, well, and, an amazing I, statement. and I'll, I'll lob back at you. We, we, as of last week, um, we have official uh, 501c3 status in the state of Oregon for our nonprofit arm called Grow Baby Life Project. Oh, beautiful. And so uh, that website's being developed. Okay. Um, will, will come up probably in the next couple months. So, so yes, I mean, um, I think what is so impressive to me, um, Kara, about you and your work and, and the world that we all live in is that um, the cheerleading that does happen oh, wow. for all of the all of our colleagues we are all just hoping and just cheering and, and wishing the best on each other and so I truly engage and, and yes and in so healing the world yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if we get to walk amongst all of you man we are 
it's so extraordinary yeah all right well listen ladies it was just a beautiful just a really nice time being able to talk to you today and i'm just so thrilled to spend some time learning about the you know in a greater detail about the important work you're doing out there and everybody will want to know more so um you know, stay tuned, folks. We'll continue to publish, you know, grow, grow Baby info on our site and send it out in our newsletters and so forth. And, of course, you'll have our show notes and um, you can hop over to their site as well. Thank you so much, Emily and Leslie, for hopping on New Frontiers with me today. Thank you for yeah. your work. Yes, absolutely. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.